he was estimating that somewhere between 15 to 20 percent of the bandwidth for each of his developers is wasted because they're trying to figure out infrastructure stuff. They have 5,000 developers. So he's paying 1,000 salaries where people are not writing applications. They're working on infrastructure. And that is ridiculous. That should be somebody else's job. Hello, welcome to Cloud Unplugged. Today I have Hazib from Rafe Systems and we'll be talking about cloud native challenges and the developer experience and maybe the developer experience gap potentially and where the challenges lie for organizations. But before we dig in, I don't suppose you want to introduce yourself, Hazib? Yeah, happy to. Well, firstly, thank you for having me, John. Looking forward to this conversation. My name is Hasib Badani. I'm the CEO of Rafe. We're in the Kubernetes management space. Looking forward to talking about Kubernetes in the enterprise. Cool. That's good. And so to get straight in a bit, obviously, you've got your own company, which is Rafe Systems, which is, like you said, mentions managing Kubernetes and general Kubernetes operations. I don't suppose you want to talk a little bit about why you're trying to solve that problem and who you're trying to solve it for, and then we can kind of dig in. Happy to talk about that. So before Rafi came about, there were maybe a hundred companies who have come and gone in this space already. I mean, I know a bunch. I only know so many people. So it stands to reason that if I know 50, then there's probably way more companies out there. And I will posit that many of those companies made two fundamental mistakes. And not because they didn't know what they were doing. It's because that was the data available at the time. But we've been going to shows like KubeCon for a long time. I don't know how many years, five years, six years, seven years, I don't know. I don't believe the enterprise market was actually using Kubernetes then. I think that when this market started, as is the case with most industries, you know, a set of developers saw the opportunity to enable their enterprise, their, their employer to move significantly faster. And they adopted these technologies. And they were solving a singular purpose, which was uh, fabric of my applications into small pieces. You know, I just only change that one piece at a time. You know what that is, right? Containerization, microservices, these are well-understood concepts. But there's a class of problems that, look, frankly, developers don't care about that become real problems when the enterprise starts thinking of this new technology as an enterprise-wide technology. When any technology is, is adopted, you know, sort of enterprise-wide, it becomes an IT function. Now, we may call IT different things now, right? We may call it platform engineering, et cetera. These are obviously, you know, evolutions of classic IT, but it's, you know, fundamentally we are in an IT function. I see myself as in, in an IT function. And IT has expectations. IT's expectations are, well, where's the audit? Simple, silly example, but how do I know John can do that, but not that other thing? I'm not going to let John get an AWS account. That's not how things are done in an enterprise. You need something, you can ask for it. Okay, what does that process look like? And on and on and on. And nobody has a single cluster, right? We know the story, right? I mean, you know, standardization of configuration. There's so many of these issues that have nothing to do with the basic problem that the generation one company solved, which was, let me help you build a cluster. The reality is it doesn't matter. I can build one too. It's not that hard. When you were saying you don't think about the enterprise, do you think then... Because Kubernetes is quite inherently complex, I mean, the fact that you've got to sit exams about it probably tells you that there's a lot to cover. Obviously, if it was really simple, the exam would be like two minutes or something, right? Because there wouldn't be very much to cover. So just the breadth of Kubernetes in general. Do you think then it was mostly adopted by like high engineering-based businesses who had talent to adopt it? Yeah. I mean, it certainly has been. I mean, even in like financial services companies, there are some very well-introduced large companies who have built these large teams who have solved for Kubernetes. And look, my experience has been that 
the first team that picks Kubernetes, and this is not a dig against anybody, just this is how things work out. You know, the first team in an enterprise who picks Kubernetes, they happen to be incredibly sophisticated engineers, and frankly, they can do anything. They could have done anything, and they decide, I'm going to solve this problem, and they do. And the next team shows up, and the next team shows up, and the next team shows up. And, and there's a decay curve to the expertise as you go team by team by team. And eventually, somebody in leadership says, why do I have to all these different DevOps people in all the different views? That doesn't make any sense. We should do this centrally, which does actually make sense. And you see, the thing is, you know, sometimes, we're, I guess if you have enough white hair, you remember these things. But most of these enterprises are VMware customers. They have been running data centers with VMs for a very long time. And they've had a certain, they manage VM infrastructure. And vCenter being, you know, a key uh, sort of you know, management system that has been used by many, 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 many enterprises to manage the data centers. In fact, from a thesis perspective, the real question we were asking ourselves was, okay, so what's this vCenter thing look like in the new world? I got Kubernetes. I got multiple environments. There's no longer a single orchestrator. It used to be ESXi was the orchestrator. There's only one. Uh, OpenStack never really, you know, took over. Okay, but uh, now I have upstream Kubernetes and I got EKS and I got EKS and I got GKE and I don't know, somebody wants OpenShift. So what is my vCenter going to look like? Right? And you start thinking about that, right? What are all the things that vCenter did? Well, yeah, it's all for VMs, but then it's also for access management. Without access management, how can you provide a Kubernetes solution? If people can't kubectl, you can't say, oh yeah, go get this other thing for access. Yeah, no, sorry, no, that's not going to work. No enterprise will buy from you. Oh yeah, so network policies, yeah, go buy this other thing. Oh, you want Kubernetes policy? You want Gatekeeper? Buy this other thing. You want cost management? Buy that other thing. You want storage on-premises? Oh yeah, buy that other thing. How many things did I buy? Who's going to manage all this stuff? Who's going to bring all this together? Well, it turns out that in the vCenter world, all these things were in a singular platform. Well, what's the equivalent of that? Right. So that was the clarity. We got to build that now. And in my opinion, you know, the mistake I said there were two mistakes, and one mistake was that yeah, people thought that this was a developer purchase, so they didn't think about all these other things. They figured, well, these are very smart buyers, and they're going to figure it out. The reality is, eventually, people want to go back to the job that they're paid for, which is their job paid to write applications. Infrastructure is not their job. Uh, very recently. In the last week, I spent time with a very, very senior person at a very, very large bank who was talking about the percentage wastage in bandwidth of his development organization as it relates to infrastructure. And he was estimating that somewhere between 15 to 20% of the bandwidth for each of his developers is wasted because they're trying to figure out infrastructure stuff. They have 5,000 developers. What is 20% of 5,000 developers? It's 1,000 people. So he's paying 1,000 salaries where people are not writing applications. They're working on infrastructure. Well, that is ridiculous. That should be somebody else's job. And that's the opportunity. And that's the opportunity that I think a lot of companies in this space miss. They were just focused on, see how fast my Kubernetes cluster comes up. Yeah, my friend, nobody cares, right? I mean, yeah, I care in a lab, but in practice, I'm not going to build a cluster every day. But we were talking about upgrades are such important things. Yes, absolutely. We support upgrades. Very nice. Very cool. But I don't upgrade my clusters every day. Most enterprises do this like once a year. The reason why they move to the next one is because there's an EOL situation of the last version. That's why people upgrade. It is, it's the market is the market. It is what it is. There's a second mistake people made. This was not it. I think the second mistake people made was perhaps more egregious, which was they assumed that the public clouds will never ship a good enough managed Kubernetes. So betting against a public cloud, that's a serious risk, right? So if you're telling the world, yeah, Amazon gas has these five things missing. This is like two, three years ago. There are companies who used to have blogs on their website talking about the problems with EKS. And of course, they removed those blogs from their website. And the thing about the internet is it doesn't forget anything. 
So you can start, still find these blogs talking about how your guess is bad. Is it good or is it bad? It's not important. The reality is your customers are essentially going to be in a hybrid situation. They may have something on-prem, but they will have a cloud, AWS or Azure or GCP or more than one, or maybe all three, I don't know. And they will use the managed Kubernetes available in these clouds. So if you will have a customer who's running something on-prem, maybe OpenShift or, I don't know, upstream Kubernetes, then they're going to have EKS in AWS, and then they're going to have AKS in Azure. The substrate is different. So your management system needs to adopt to support all these substrates. And if you don't do that well, I have Cappy is not a good answer, by the way. That's a bad answer. Here's Cappy, bad answer. I can explain why. Um, you're not going to build a real company. You're not going to make any money, frankly. Right? And these are the things that we bet on. We bet that A, people will not understand these things, and B, you'll get them right. And we have. What do you think stops? Because I guess there's a lot of kind of, I agree with what you're saying around, you know, people are mostly focused on day zero style, day one style stuff at the very beginning. So it's just about enablement. Like devs have got some containers. We can go and spin something up. Let's quickly go and spin up a Kubernetes. And that's kind of where it begins for a lot of people that are maybe not, they don't know what they don't know at the very beginning, I suppose. And then later on find themselves in a place where, they're starting to feel the pain because of the complexity of all the operational requirements that the business has on them after they've delivered something. But at the same time, there's still, I think, in our domain, when you were talking about the point solution things, you know, like a security tool and then a cost management tool and all these types of things, there is definitely in the platform DevOps mindset on lots of different tools. You know, you kind of stitch them all together yourself when you're in that kind of like build over by kind of mentality. Do you think that's still prevalent now where people do want to stitch it all together themselves? I would say that that type of thinking is changing pretty fast because if you are relying on a set of people, and I'm going to look, these are things I'm going to say that perhaps are, you know, unfair in some respects, but this is the reality of our industry right now. Many companies, because they were, focused on attracting talent, they would let their DevOps engineers do a lot of things that they felt, well, this would empower them and they're going to stay. So if I let them build a platform, they will stay. But people eventually take off, right? So your IP just left with that guy who got a better job in another company, right? Because it's in his head, right? He was the guy who wrote Terraform and now he's gone. Now you're going to start all over again. How many times have you heard this story? Right? So this has happened enough times now in our industry where leadership in multiple enterprises and, you know, the logos of companies who are our customers is on our website, they have all come to the conclusion, because they must, right, that I don't want to do this in-house. Counterintuitively, all of our customers, most of our customers, large majority at least, had already built something before they engaged with us. So if you already built something, why are you talking to me? Because the cost of maintaining these platforms is so high if you built it in-house that eventually even the ones who built it, they say, my God, I would rather do something else. And this is the issue. Initially, it just seems very easy. And it's not about people not understanding or like you said, right? You only know what well, you don't know what you don't know. So, you know, eventually people get experience in this space. And the good news is they're all very, very smart people. If you build a platform in-house, you are not, you know, a mediocre engineer. You must have the, you know, like incredible talent. And people who are at that level kind of talented, you know, they make logical decisions, right? Thursday, I talked to the CIO for a large sort of financial service company in the US, an incredibly technical gentleman. He could probably just build it himself, like he was that technical. And sometimes you meet these incredibly sharp people, and the entire conversation was about what have you built and why? And when would you decide to not use it anymore? So the instant I find something that does all the things that we do, why would I continue? The real question is the cost of migration. 
because my people are really, really sophisticated. I'd rather put them on things that make money. And this is not a thing that makes me money. This is a thing that was a means to an end because without it, I couldn't deliver my applications. Of course, so this was the right thing to build at the time, three, four years ago. But now, if I could find something, and he actually said something that I hear a lot, that we periodically do essentially a market check. Is there something out there that can take this burden from us? And if there is, great. If there isn't, no problem. We'll keep going. We'll come again in six months or a year and do another market check, right? This is the right mentality. And these are the smart people who are building some internal platforms, and they're not caught up with ego. They're caught up with solving the problem, doing the right thing. And in many, many cases, the right thing is actually to not build it. Write your applications, the infrastructure will come from elsewhere. Otherwise, they would have gone to Amazon, right? They would have built their own data centers forever. They saw the commoditization of that layer and they said, why would we do this? Let's go to the cloud. Similar thing is happening here. This is commoditized now. What we do, you do, is a commodity. It doesn't mean it's free. It doesn't mean it's easy. It means everybody else is doing the same thing. So where is the competitive advantage? Commodity. So if it's a commodity, you should spend the least amount of money solving it because there's no competitive advantage. And in all cases, the least amount of money is to buy. Build is always more expensive. Yeah, you're going to get economies of scale elsewhere, which they won't get, right, I suppose, because there's no, you don't, you don't get the economy of scale internally because you can't sell it back on. So it's a total cost. Well, you have one customer, right? I mean, you're building literally for one customer, right? I mean, but we have enough customers. And I, I say this all the time. When you work with us, it's as if you hired a guy named Rafi. By the way, Rafi is my son's name, so it's a boy's name. Yeah, you hired a guy named Rafi. You have enough people on the team. It's one other person and you pay him a salary. But in the process, this engineering rough, it brings 200 people because we got an army behind rough. And that's why we can support all of these different customers. Um, and that's the right way to think about it. It's a commodity. I need to solve it. That's not a discussion. I need to solve it in the, in the sort of enterprise way with all the right controls. That is not a discussion either. Okay, now what is the path of these resistance? If I can find the platform that does these things, then I should look at it. OpenShift as an example, the entire platform OpenShift, not OCP, I guess. It's a beautiful platform. They've done an incredibly good job solving for all these things, whether they do all the things that we talked about on this call, yeah? But then they only do it for OpenShift, the distribution or OKD, and they do it, you know, in a very specific environment. And it's, you know, it's got, in my opinion, some things that they should address over time. But they have sort of missed, and that was mistake number two that, in my opinion, Red Hat made, was they never took EKS and EKS and GK seriously to their detriment. Had, so, but they didn't get uh, sort of mistake number one was not made that they got that right. The problem number two they made that was a mistake they made. Anybody who makes one of these mistakes, there's an opportunity limitation. If you don't make either mistakes, you can build a real. I think the clouds are funny though, because even AKS and GK, from a point solution perspective, they kind of make sense and they advertise themselves. You know, the phenomenal businesses and the business model is great, and they provide obviously a huge amount of value. But they're all in the point solution marketing. But obviously, as a business you are thinking about scale, which is like the same solution many times over, but they don't necessarily form those patterns. They have like frameworks and they'll be like, hey, you know, there's a well-architected framework and, you know, you should have blast radius reduced and you should do these things. But then their point solutions are still point solutions because you're like, okay, well, how do I manage 30 clusters? Or how am I going to manage, you know, 30 teams consuming 30 clusters, maybe non-production and production, et cetera. So I think even though they're quite good at solving some aspects to execute well as a business around those to some kind of repetition so that you can manage things well internally, I don't think they are really trying to address that. They're like, here's the toolkit. You can obviously go and make it all yourself. So then it's the responsibility model then back on the customer too. So you might have been sold the dream of 
all right, managed service, I'm done. This is it. You know, we don't need to bother. But actually, how you design for consumption of that across the business is still your responsibility. And you're kind of back to square one on like, okay, well, how do I then solve that again? The easy answer for enterprises is, you know, give everybody an AWS or Azure account for subscription, I guess they call it. And yeah, they can spin up an EKS cluster in Azure or EKS cluster. And it's not that hard. Now you got your own cluster. Now you're, you know, but if you're a big enterprise, you can have thousands of these now, and then it'll be really hard to manage. Infrastructure providers will provide infrastructure, right? Kubernetes is an infrastructure. How you consume it is not an infrastructural issue. That's more of a pass issue. And I will bet you in at least one of these cloud cases, I know this for a fact, and Google already has those, yeah, so they understand, you know, what it takes. I think they all, not I think, I know they all understand the problem, but the reality is those businesses, EKS and EKS, are growing really, really fast. It's actually shocking how fast they're growing, how many consumers they have. It's actually mind-boggling the number of different accounts that are using EKS, for example. Yeah, man, look, I mean, if you have customers, you're going to service your customers, right? They're also filing tickets, right? So you got to go work on that. They have clarity that they have to get here. The question is, when? Is it going to happen in the next year, two years, three years, four years? I think it's going to take time because they're so successful, right? Now, EKS, as an example, they've added things like backup to the cluster and whatnot. It's already in the system. You can just press a button. The GKE is actually very elegant, right? They have all these features built in. But then if I have 10 of these or 100 of these, then that's where they have challenges today. I will bet you that all of these cloud providers will start adding backup capabilities, you know, like centralized upgrades, et cetera, yeah, at some point in the next 12 to 18 months. It's coming. So if we build companies that are essentially focused on that, if we understand that the problem is bigger and you have to stay ahead of them so that they see value in your platform. If you're like a year ahead of them, they're not going to support you. What is the point? They're going to come soon. If you're three, four years ahead of them and with the assumption that customers actually have this need, they will help you. And so far, knock on wood, you know, our friends at AWS have helped us a lot, right? I mean, there's enough videos we've done with AWS. If you just Google Rafi and EKS, you're going to find like a thousand different uh, things that have been done. Yeah, can you support us in accounts? Because I mean, for them, the problem is very simple or the question is very simple. Are you going to make my customer's life easy? And is there data that shows that you have? Yes and yes. Okay, then we'll support you. At some point, if I don't need you to do that anymore, right, then yes. You just have to maintain, you know, sort of that distance, right? And that's the art of a startup. You got to stay ahead of whatever else, right? You don't just focus on competition. Competition is not interesting to focus on. This market is very big, right? So you don't need to worry about your competition. There's enough customers. That's not the issue. You have to think about these tertiary competitors. I mean, competitors are the wrong word, right? I mean, you know, partners today, competitors tomorrow, basically, right? At some point, everybody will come because this is a real opportunity. Look, every single enterprise in the world, 50, 60,000 of them globally, are going to address this problem somehow. And well, you have a choice, right? Have you built something that's interesting to them? You're going to build a public company. If you build something that is you know, not solving the real problem and you're focused on, look how fast my cluster comes up or EKS is bad, whatever, right? Silly things like that. Or we help you upgrade. Okay, all right, very nice. But then this problem will get solved. You have to really think, step back and think about what is the real problem in the enterprise? Like drift management. You got 100 clusters. How do you know there's no drift? Or you a specific example. Large companies use Datadog, yeah? When you install Datadog on every cluster, the API key on every cluster is different. Yeah, how did you do that? If you expect your customer to go cluster by cluster by cluster by cluster, now we get the API key. You do not have a good solution. That product will not work out long term because it doesn't solve the real problems. And that's the issue. People don't seem to understand the real problems in an enterprise. It's got nothing to do with the nugget, the Kubernetes nugget. That people understand. It's all these other things. And if you solve for that, you will build a real company. Very simple, actually. Do you think, though, that because it's obviously the developers, because there's the operational complexity, 
because each time you're kind of a business is trying to address something i think if you were like a couple of teams you're probably fine right so you could make it work and you probably wouldn't need to invest much in anything external because it's like you could have a person managing those clusters because there isn't that many of them. But every time you hit an element of scale, every time scale comes into the equations, the problem magnifies, you know, it's like exponentially grows. So all the challenge that you might have on just a person to two, you then scale to 2000. And then you realize that, you know, whatever percentage of time they were spending on two, obviously they've got to times that by 2000, then that's kind of the scale of the problem that kind of goes with the technology. On the other side, though, you kind of have devs who don't really care, right? Let's be honest. They're like, don't really care. (laughs) Like, Kubernetes is probably forced on me. I'm all about containers, not necessarily Kubernetes per se. So on one hand, you've got a bunch of people that just want to kind of innovate on development innovation for the business, not necessarily operational innovation, because that's just a means to an end, not really something they're passionate about. But those two worlds seem still a little bit disjointed. You know, you kind of have operational challenges going on one hand, and they impede innovation somewhere else on the other hand and they're not necessarily well connected and i still think kind of ironically i think you you write about openshift they did quite a good job trying to bridge the two you know to try and make kubernetes more developer centric over being operational centric which i think made a lot of sense but still quite opinionated do you see that gap closing down now with like as in more of a focus on developer experience or business enablement or innovation enablement so what do developers actually want, right? So they want to write their code. They want to check in their code. Maybe they want to test their code. So when it comes to testing their code, they need a sandbox. The sandbox should align with their needs, and that's it. Where's the Kubernetes in that? So the reason why developers end up exposed to Kubernetes is because some decisions have been made in large enterprises where, look, you know, because our automation at the platform level and the central level is only going to allow for us to build an entire cluster, I'm going to just give you a cluster. Okay, here's a kubeconfig. Okay, all right, so now I got to learn something. Yeah, I mean, you know, how do I get my pipeline right? Am I going to take my cube config? No, actually, I'm going to go there. I'm going to bring a new user. I don't know, call it GitHub Actions. But GitHub Actions, I'm going to authenticate that. So I need DEX. And okay, well, now I got DEX. So I need to type to IDC. And okay, well, that's one thing. Oh, oh my God, right? I mean, this is what happens. And then slowly the developers say, wow, look, guys, you're the center team, please, if you could. Step back and think about all the kind of the base functionality that I probably need anyway. Everybody needs it. You want it. And then sort of, you know, the platform team starts kind of taking on more things. Okay, we'll give you a cluster, but then we'll add, uh, you know, the right monitoring and blah, blah, blah. And we're going to point it to the right places. And, you know, that's why platform teams are sort of born in enterprises. But even so, if a developer says, I need a sandbox, because I think that's the right level of abstraction we should be talking about. I need a sandbox. Okay, well, what does that mean? Uh, well, I'm a Spring Boot developer, uh, but this other guy's a data scientist. So because of my identity in this enterprise, I need different things. I, mean, I need a namespace, probably, in a dev cluster, but then I need an RDS instance. Maybe somebody should spin up a notebook for me or whatever, right? And my personality is going to determine the sandbox that I need, and it should all be automated. When I do a Git pull, pull request, rather, and say, give me a sandbox, and my sandbox should have ABC. It should just happen. That's the right level of abstraction for a developer. There's no Kubernetes. I want to do Kubernetes in that, give me a dashboard where I can go and see, like, I'm getting this alert that my pod is, like, restarting all the time. So I want to debug it over there. Okay. So give me a path in so that I can look at my events coming out of that specific pod. This is it. It's all for that. You have real business. Don't expose developers to things that they don't care about. They will if, if they have to, but that's not a platform then, right? 
you punted the problem to the developer and you're not going to make the money you should make. Because you said earlier, right before you asked this question, you know, there's one engineer, I'm paraphrasing, and they have a few clusters in the company and they can manage them. If you think about it, you just said that this company, this fictional company, their cost of Kubernetes operations is one salary. All right. Where are you based, John? I did not ask you this question before. Which country are you in today? Okay, in the UK. So that's 200,000 pounds, fully loaded, benefits, et cetera, et cetera. So essentially what you just said was to manage a few clusters, the fictional company you came up with is spending 200,000 pounds. Is that cheap to run Kubernetes? It's not cheap. It's not cheap at all, right? So what you're saying is, look, today 200,000 is not that much money. But when it gets to, I don't know, I'm making up a number, a million pounds, then we will take this seriously. Actually, no, you should take it seriously today. You should really think about it, right? You spend 200,000 Would you rather just pay 200,000 pounds to somebody else and take this clearly sharp engineer and have them work on more points? That makes a pretty good deal, right? That's how people are thinking about this now. I think that particularly because of the economy, given where it is, more and more people will look to augment their staff, right? Because headcount is harder at this point in time, right? You can't go to your CFO and say, give me five more headcount to manage Kubernetes. Yeah, no, it's not going to happen. It's done now, right? At least for the next few years. And then we'd forget again and the market would be crazy again. But till that time, well, this is the opportunity, right? We're telling our customers, you are probably as well, there's an opportunity to save money, right? You take these smart people and put them on more important things. And the reality is nobody runs an entire Kubernetes practice with one engineer. Never happens. It's always multiple. So how much does that cost? And that's the real cost. And people, you know, developers are highly optimistic people, right? So they kind of feel like, oh, this is so easy. I can do this on the weekend. Well... Maybe, but you're wasting a lot of your own time, right? And that time could be invested in something else. We always minimize the problem in our heads till we start working on it. And this is a, in my opinion, over the years I've seen now, like the smartest people make this mistake, right? They trivialize the problem in their heads because in their minds, right? Because they're smart people, they can really think about all these different things. And they go, okay, well, I'll do this and I'll do this and I'll do this. Okay. All right. That's about, I don't know, 20 hours of work. I got this. But then you get into it and then you find out all these other degrees. And this is the issue with Kubernetes. It is truly a glacier. It seems pretty easy, and it's not. The number of people I meet, they go, that's pretty easy. I don't need anything. And then three, four, five months later, they go, oh, my God, this is, uh, you know, the team's growing, and, you know, it's all these other issues. And then my center of excellence wants this, and the security guys want that. And, oh, my God, this is really hard, and the backlog is not this big. Okay, this is why companies exist to solve this problem for you. Hire this guy named Rafi, or whatever, right? And get going. You would have done it anyway. You would have hired some guy or gal anyway. But do you think an example, because say like the one person that was mentioning, I don't think they necessarily like Kubernetes is a specific technology term, but I think when you go to the cloud, there's obviously three or 400 services, depending on which, right? So there's like 300 services there, not just Kubernetes in the equation. So that person that's brokering the developer need won't just be responsible for Kubernetes, it's going to be responsible probably for more than just that. And the illusion is that the services from the cloud are enablement for the business to function because that's why the business has decided to go to the cloud. And that's true because it is, like there's no argument there. But I don't think people necessarily anticipate the cost of responsibility on some of the technologies back to them. So some technologies like S3, you know, very little. Very little on the business, much more SaaS driven. So I'm not sure people, you know, in, in the example I was given, I'm not sure people make the decision knowing what outcome they're causing when they choose it. I don't think there's a lot of people that will just be like, hey, Kubernetes is there, great. I'm going to use that. Apparently, it's the tool 
or orchestrating containers, let's go with it without knowing all the ins and outs of what it actually means to run it and operate it in line with the gaps that the cloud vendor maybe hasn't solved. They've solved maybe 50% and they could be all, and it'll get to 60%, but there's still a bunch in there that's not resolved. And Yeah, we have two choices as vendors, right? We can sort of wait for our customers to learn these lessons themselves. In many cases, they just will anyway. Or in the other case, we can at least, I mean, at a minimum or perhaps at best, we can sort of share with them all the things that probably will come up and at least have those open conversations. You know, it's the reality of the situation. It's all the things that need to be done. And the intent is not to scare people away from Kubernetes. The intent is, look, it's okay. It's fine. It can be it's a solvable problem. And when it is all done, then Kubernetes is a thing of beauty. But till you get there, you know, there will be a lot of toil. And that conversation, we just have to have in a very sort of nurturing and educational way. But the intent is not to kind of force feed a platform down their throats. They will buy when they're ready. It is what it is, right? And maybe they're not ready today. I don't know. Right? So what we're going to talk about all the things that they need to think about. And we're going to essentially remind them to think about ABC. And at some point, they're going to say, okay, I see it, I need it, or no, and that's okay. We're going to go to the next vendor who might, or other customer who might care. The really, really good news is, you know, going back to the meta picture, everybody's got this issue. It's just a matter of time, right? Because everybody's going to Kubernetes. Pretty much everybody I meet is doing something in Kubernetes. And, you know, this market is going to standardize on some platforms. I'm convinced that there will be three or four vendors in the space. It won't be one. It's never one in the enterprise space. It'll be three or four. It won't be 30. It'll be three or four. And it's not clear who they are right now. I don't know all, like if I had to pick a number four, I don't know who the all, all the four are. I'm pretty confident one of us is us. I mean, we, you know, we, we seem to be doing okay. But I don't know who the other three are, frankly, just yet. I mean, it's not Rancher, for example. Right, I know that. That's probably OpenShift. Right? OpenShift is going to be around forever, in my opinion, because OpenShift has this other thing called ECM, which is going to be already kind of supporting you know, EKS and AKS. And it's, today, maybe it's not that great, but it'll get better, a function of time. Right? And there'll be probably another, another couple of vendors. So yeah, or maybe more. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's 10. Huh? But there's enough money to be made here. And it's not a function of... This is not a, I'm not speaking from a position of greed. What I'm saying is the opportunity size is large enough that if you have the right platform, people will adopt it because it's going to make their life better, right? And that's the part to understand, right? This is not about selling them something. This is about giving them the clarity that, yeah, indeed, their life could be better. And when, when they get there, of course, they will want to spend money with you. Why would they not? They should run not block if you're going to make their life better. No, it's really cool. And what about the people that are starting in the space? So, you know, people that are kind of moving to be more cloud native or people that are even just moving to cloud for the first time, I guess, would you see them adopting Kubernetes or would you see them adopting different technologies like serverless technologies rather than maybe Kubernetes technologies or... I don't even know what it means anymore. I thought serverless was Lambda as an example. Now people say ECS is also serverless. I actually don't know what it means anymore. But with the assumption that we're really talking about event-driven architecture, just so Lambda, Kubernetes, etc. This is my limited experience with writing applications over the years. I don't know if every application can be written as an event-driven system. Many are. You can force feed anything into anything, right? Or rather, you know, shove a square peg into a round hole. You can. I don't know. Maybe you should. Maybe you should. I think that the modern application is a combination of managed services like RDS or whatever, EMR, and then some Kubernetes infrastructure and then some Lambda slash, you know, serverless you know, functions, classically functions. I think it's a combination. I think the successful companies in the space over time are going to mature to address all three. It won't be one. But you have to start somewhere and, you know, you can survive, make money, thrive on Kubernetes. But long term, you want to build a real business, you got to solve all three. It can't be just one. So it's not to say the other two things are not real. No, they're absolutely real. 
you know, I can only put out so many fires at a time. Right now, I'm focused on Kubernetes. But no, indeed, we, so we announced a platform called Environment Manager last week, which essentially is a template, like a Terraform templatizing capability SaaS service uh, where you can create an entire environment. And the environment could be anything. Kubernetes, yeah, sure. But all these other things are on Kubernetes. And it's a good step in the right direction, in my opinion, for the company, because uh, we can now help our sort of customer to uh, solve a bigger problem, which is a cloud problem. So yeah, we were there now. I mean, we launched a, uh, we'll be doing demos of that at KubeCon in a few weeks, three minutes, KubeCon, three weeks, three weeks or sooner. Oh my God, sooner. So we'll be doing demos of that and then, you know, people can come and get the tires and try it out. But we did that step. We knew the step would come five years ago, but we just couldn't get here two years ago. It didn't make any sense. We had to at least get our Kubernetes implementation to a point of sort of maturity where customers could truly use it in a big environment? And the answer to that is yes, they can. Now let's focus on this other problem. That makes a lot of sense. And if people wanted to find you, where would they find you, either personally or the company? How would someone get in touch if they wanted to get in touch? So the website is Rafay, R-A-F-A-Y, Rafay, I was with a shirt, dot C-O. Couldn't get the com. Somebody else already had it, but C-O. I'm on Twitter, Haseeb Budani. I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, my Calendly is on LinkedIn, actually. So if somebody wants to just set up time and have a conversation about these crazy ideas, uh, happy to do it. This is a complex problem. As John said, right? People, sometimes people don't know what they don't know. There's no book for this. Like Kubernetes for Dummies does not cover any of these things. By the way, there is a book called Kubernetes for Dummies. It doesn't cover these things. And we have to kind of get to that point of clarity by talking to each other. So I spend a lot of time doing that, just talking to you know people in large enterprises, like just talking about what have we built and is there a different path? It's not about selling anything. It's just about you know getting all of us to that next level as an enterprise and as a community. I'm looking forward to that. So please do find me on LinkedIn, on Twitter. Again, the, the website for the company is Rafay, R-A-F-A-Y dot C-O. Perfect. Thanks a lot. And thanks for your time as well. And then obviously people have just heard how to get in touch. But that was great. Great having you on and to talk about these problems. So that's thanks. Thank you, John, for having me. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Cheers.